My first experience happened on a regular basis for as long as I can remember. Most nights, my name would be called when I was sleeping. It was a man's voice. I always assumed it was my father. Jacob, it said in sort of a half whisper. I'd wake up to it and reply, yeah, dad? Nothing was there. Nothing was ever there. For a while, I assumed it was some mental thing that wasn't supernatural until much later. My dad told me that his name was called in the same way every night. Not just him, but my uncle as well, who shared the same name. There were a lot of small things like that that would occur occasionally, such as our analog gas heater being turned to max constantly, even in the middle of summer, or light bulbs unscrewing from lamps that faced upward. Sometimes guests would see a little boy in the downstairs hallway late at night. They would tell my parents I was awake and running around, but when my parents went to check on me, I'd of course be fast asleep. The first big thing that I remember happened when I was 10. I'd come home sick from school. My mom and dad were at work. I was a little uneasy about being home alone, but I brushed it off and watched cartoons. About 10 minutes into my binge, I started hearing what sounded like a toddler running up and down the downstairs hallway. I could hear the slap of feet on the hardwood floor. Of course, I did the typical stupid horror movie character thing and went to investigate. I saw nothing, but heard the footsteps running towards me. I immediately called my aunt in tears, asking to be taken to her house. She tried to comfort me, saying, sometimes these things happen, but they can't hurt you. I wasn't having it, and demanded she pick me up. It was around this time that my parents were remodeling our bathroom. All the activity was in full swing. My dad heard stomping upstairs when he was home alone, and asked into the darkness for it to stop, only to feel a slap on his forehead. One day, my sister, who was four at the time, was sitting on the kitchen floor. She started screaming at the top of her lungs. When my parents asked what was wrong, she said that she saw a man at the back door. My dad found no trace of anyone. There was mud all over our backyard, and if there was someone there, they would have left footprints. My mom had a mirror that was angled to reveal the staircase from her bed. One night, after waking up from an intense dream, she saw a shadowy figure crawling up the stairs. She looked away for a second, and when she looked back, it was gone. She ran down the stairs and saw her old antique clock that never worked, intensely ticking. Near the end of the remodeling, my dad found a small old locket under the tiles that had old photos in it. He threw the locket away with the rest of the old flooring, not thinking much of it. Everything stopped. No footsteps, no voices, nothing. The last thing happened some time later. A dear friend passed away by suicide, and I blamed myself for not being there for them. The night after his funeral, I had a dream. All I can remember from the dream was seeing his face and saying his name. After I said his name, I heard what sounded like a car crash in the middle of my bedroom that jolted me awake. When I came to, I saw that the light bulb in my ceiling fan had unscrewed and smashed the ground. When he was alive, my friend loved pranks and would do them to everyone, often, so unscrewing a light bulb to wake up a friend was right up his alley. Since then, my house has been completely inactive, sadly, so I may have to start investigating local haunted places. I know there's a haunted bar near where I live, so if I decide to check it out, I'll be sure to let you know 
if anything happens. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. And this is Cool Intentions. Yay. Thank you, Jacob. Jacob? Jacob. Jacob. So I hope you do tell us stories if something happens at a bar. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that it's not in your house anymore, so that you have to go out looking for it. Right. That's shadows. usually yeah. Shadows like and it. being slapped in the forehead. I don't like that. Uh-uh. I don't like his dad having to call in the darkness going, stop it, and then slap is the response. Mm-hmm. Like, man, it's a, that's a slap in the face. <laughs> Too easy. Literally. Um, whew, good story. Man. Thank you. Thank you. What? Sorry about your friend, too. That's really yeah, rough. That is hard. It's hard to deal with. Really, really hard. Oof, goodness. Yeah. So, What's our title today? Our title today, well, as people know who've heard the last one, we are continuing Chicago for the third episode in a row. Yeah. We started maybe with... The, maybe a fourth, too. Uh, we'll, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We started with um, the Archer Avenue, mm-hmm. which led to Resurrection Mary, but that was too much to cover in one. So I covered Ma- Resurrection Mary last time. So good. And so good. then um, we... Let's see... Uh, Resurrection Cemetery I was going to do this week. Right. So um, the title, I decided it would be perfect to take it from the musical Chicago. <laughs> um, the the line, it's, I took the line from the musical Chicago, the song Razzle Dazzle. Razzle Dazzle. Specifically. And the line is, the truth above the roar. Ooh, so appropriate. Yes, I thought that would be appropriate both our topics. for both of ours. Um, leaning heavier on yours, mm-hmm. because your topic, um, um, I believe, based upon what we've there discussed. There are multiple actuallys in yeah. my topic, surprisingly. Yeah, and, and uh, mine, my story is not without some actually business. So, without further ado, adieu. I was going to do Resurrection Cemetery. Now, right. pretty much that's exclusively um, Resurrection Mary. Everything yeah, you find is Resurrection Mary. Gig. It's like, her gig. No other she owns even it. bothers trying to get in. There's, and, there's, there's the three of them that are like, that have yeah, the role two to of three, Resurrection Mary. Yeah, probably. So speak, At least, like, if not more. And yeah. the thing is, if people see, any kind of spirit, they're like, oh, it's Resurrection Mary. Like, they just give her all the credit for everything. Man, it's going to suck being a ghost in another ghost's yeah. shadow in terms what about, of popularity. What about Resurrection Jonathan? What yeah. about him? Yeah. Jonathan's like, we're all here in I'm not even Cemetery. a lady. <laughs> uh, so instead of that, because I couldn't find a whole lot, um, and this was not quite in the triangle, the Archer Avenue triangle, mm-hmm. that... I spoke of a couple weeks ago. Um, this is actually a little further south. It's only 15 min- miles. 15 minutes, miles. It's about the same. Yeah, depending 15, on what happened. Yeah. Um, south. Well, 10 the way we drive. To Bachelor's Grove. Mm-hmm. So Bachelor's Grove is cemetery. I is just. I make, pardon me. I just, I realize when I go back and listen to these. I make some of the dumbest fucking noises in response. I'll <laughs> to take when those I'm over the swallowing. 
people don't have to listen to you swallow <laughs> because it's edited out. But I've also been disgusting. very good about not chewing on ice. That's true, except for because, last time. Because, well, that was on purpose, but mm -hmm. Matt hates it when I chew ice. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just so, trying to tap into the ASMR crowd. That's all. Right. It's to. Okay, back to Bachelor Grove. <laughs> Sorry, Bachelor Grove, Bachelor Grove. This is it's, quality content they come here for. That's right. We don't know what the fuck we're talking about. <laughs> so directly south, almost directly south, it's south, about 15 miles, uh, is a Bachelor's Grove Cemetery. It is just northwest of Midlothian and Oak Forest near the Rubio Woods Forest Preserve on the Midlothian Turnpike. It's in the, the southwest woods. Chicago suburbs. Whereas Resurrection is huge. Resurrection Cemetery is fucking enormous. Yeah. It's one of the largest cemeteries in North America, encompassing over 540 acres with over 152,000 graves. And that does not count the 5,300 crypts in the mausoleum. Wow. That shit is huge. Bachelor's Grove is one full acre with... Little 82 plots. Now. Tiny. Just a little modest cemetery. Just a little baby just cemetery. Just a little play. It's, it, you know. Yeah. Guess I which, respect that. Guess which out of the two is considered one of the most haunted cemeteries in America? Bachelor's Grove. You're right. <gasps> it's the, you know, it's the underdog. I'm, it, I'm rooting for the underdog. It's little, but it packs a punch. Mm. Right. Okay. So let's get into it. <laughs> the land surrounding Bachelors Grove Cemetery was originally settled by English homesteaders who relocated to the area from New England around 1833. It's believed the original name of the actual cemetery was the Everden Cemetery after the original holder of the property title, Corintha Everden, who purchased the land at the first Illinois public land sales in 1835. Why don't we have names like that anymore? Corintha. Corintha. Right. It's actually had a ton of names, though. Ursula Bielski wrote Haunted Bachelor's Grove, and I really want to give her a lot of the credit for research done on pretty much any haunting in Chicago. Okay. She's on her shit. It's hard to look up any history of hauntings in Chicago and not come across her research. She's fantastic. So in her book, she says, and then you'll hear why that she's kind of a level above. This is her book. The cemetery and the settlement have been known by a dizzying array of names, Burzel's Grove and Petzel's Grove, Old Smith's and Old Schmidt's, Old Bachelors and English Bachelors and Bachelders, Bachelors, Bachelors, <laughs> batch. or Bacheldus Grove. Good Lord. Yeah. It's been called Crestwood Grove in some gene genealogical resources. The favorite I found is Everdense. Fitting. I think for such a genealogical confounding site. Bachelor's Grove, however, is the name that has endured, and pioneer Stephen Rexford would always claim that the land was named after he and the other single men who settled the area in the early 1830s, coming first to Fort Dearborn and then on to the prairies beyond. So that's from her book. She does a lot of research into it. I respect the hell out of that because, yeah. like, how much digging she had to do just to find those names? Yeah, and she goes into it. And to know it. that they're all talking about the same place. Yes, she goes way more into it than just that. That's just an example. Respect. So, yes, I highly recommend checking out her stuff. So Stephen Rexford was one of the most famous pioneers to have settled in the area. He's the one that's like, it's named after us bachelors because we're just out here being bachelors. Um, but interestingly, according to the spring of 1833 U.S. Agricultural Survey, Three people, Thomas McClintock, Alva Crandall, and Samuel Everden, 
were recorded as having planted a grove of peach and other fruit trees at Bachelor's Grove, B-A-T-C-H, Bachelor's Grove. Bachelor. <laughs> well, like what you said, uh, which supports the idea that the area was actually named after a surname and not for a bunch of dudes who couldn't get laid because there were no ladies around, allegedly. It kind of makes you wonder, right? Like the best way to be gay in the 1830s is oh. to go wild, wild west. That's very true. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I just, I want, can we just have a show like Deadwood, but it's like about like the first gay frontier town. There was, there had to have been. Wood can still be in the title. Uh It's very much a live wood. Yes. (laughs) A live wood. (laughs) Ready wood. Um, Okay. So Ursula goes into the names and the history of them more in detail. But I love how history and folklore get mixed together like this. Um, And this is just in the name of this place. The site saw its first known burials around 1836 and contains 200 graves, but only 82 of those were actually used. Did I say 82 or 84 up here? I gotta look now. In the 80s, though, which is tiny. 82. Yeah, I was right. Okay. Sometimes it's eight. Oh, this is why. Burials, however, go possibly as far back as 1834. That's the four in that is why I was mm, thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, when German immigrant workers killed while working on the Illinois and Michigan Canal were reportedly laid to rest at the site. The site is often reported to have been a dumping ground for victims of Chicago's organized crime families of the 1920s and 30s, including Al Capone. But, of course, no evidence of this has been proven. You want I should bump them? <laughs> you want I should sleep with the fishes? Yeah, you, want should, you want I should be a confirmed bachelor? <laughs> <laughs> so for In my those movie, that's dialogue right, right for it's this, good i like the it. story of al capone for those who don't know bachelor grove bachelor's grove you probably do and you just don't know it after all it was in this cemetery in august of 1991 that judy huff took an infrared image of a ghostly woman sitting in white forlornly sitting on a gravestone after having been verified by film and camera companies as inexplicable, although a double exposure is often blamed, even though Huff claims she does not know the woman in the picture, this image is one of the most famous ghost photographs ever taken. Let me see. Bachelor's Grove is also considered one of the most haunted cemeteries in Illinois and the United States. It's that one. Oh. Yeah. Because you think it's older. Yeah, it just, like, look, it just looks like a It's because she was though. using an infrared camera. Oh, and so, so it's, got it that, looks, it's got that overexposed. Yeah. Um, right. It looks like it looks like an overexposed photograph from the technology that was available. Yeah, in the 20s. she almost looks like she's not wearing any shoes, and she's just kind of sitting there. It's a white dress. It kind of looks slumped. like a nightgown. She's slumped over. She's sitting, and that—that's what makes me think it's not a double exposed because she's very clearly put her weight upon this bench. Yeah. So, um, hmm. anyway, accessible off Where? the old Mithlothian Turnpike lost my spot, Um, only by a small dirt path that cuts a quarter mile through trees and undergrowth. This cemetery is disturbing. Its very presence unnerving. Years of neglect don't help either. Numerous Mm. gravestones have been vandalized. Some of the graves themselves have been desecrated. Normally, as you know, I think a haunted graveyard or cemetery is bullshit. It's illogical. Unless you are someone who spent a lot of time in a cemetery, it makes no sense for you to haunt the cemetery. Right. Our grandparents and great-grandparents would have definitely spent more time in a cemetery than we do. Yeah. But is it enough to haunt that cemetery? Who knows? It would would have to be something major. That said, when the area has been vandalized and desecrated, one wonders what the disrespect might bring forth. 
in Bachelors in the Bachelors Grove case, in Bachelors Grove's case, there it is. <laughs> it seems to have had quite the effect. Oh. Who would vandalize a cemetery, though? Fucking assholes. The answer to this Garbage is obviously people. stupid kids. Mm. I'm not going to blame all teenagers for this kind of shit, but I feel confident that I can hold the stupid ones responsible. I know. Hashtag not all teenagers. But that said, in the 1950s, as the Chicago suburbs expanded and farm area around the cemetery was converted to housing, the local teenagers needed an isolated spot for the drugs and the parties. Uh. Enter Bachelor's Grove, a quiet little cemetery in the backwoods. They vandalized the tombstones amongst other foul deeds, I'm sure. Uh, And that is generally believed to have been what angered the spirits. Yada, yada, yada. It's now one of the most active paranormal locations in the country. Thanks a lot, asshole teens from the 50s. Right. There are eight major players in the spooky activity at Bachelor's Grove. Are you ready? So ready. Number one, blue light phenomena. Yes. As we know, the red light phenomena is at is over the lake closer to Archer Avenue. Right, this right. Is blue lights. Blue lights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The most documented paranormal activity is the blue light phenomena that appear in the form of orbs. The orbs are said to roam the entire graveyard area. You can find them in the cemetery over a nearby pond and along the pathway from 143rd Street. Let me say that part again. From 143rd Street, in case anybody didn't hear me trip over my face. Um, <laughs> the lights seem to be intelligence because they respond to your movements. The origin of the blue light legend is generally thought to have come from a sighting that took place in 1970 by Jack Hermansky of Illinois. He described a blue light from within the cemetery that grew as large as a basketball, blinked in 10 to 20 second intervals, and rapidly changed positions. He had also reported the light on at least two different occasions. That reminds me of the kind of stuff, the blue the blue meanies that they'd mm-hmm. see at uh, the Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. Also the size of a basketball, or yeah. could grow to the size of a basketball. Will and of the Wisp blink, type of thing. And, yeah. Yeah. However. So they were often called cemetery lights. Right. By uh, our European ancestors. Yes. They have them at Bachelor's Grove. However, it seems as though there were several reports of the lights in the 60s as well. Originally, most people are saying it's this other guy in 1970, but in 1963, three young boys disappeared into the woods near the cemetery. Fuck. The woods. Um, (laughs) When the boys were initially found by police on 143rd Street after being lost for a couple of weeks, all three of them, yes, all three of them could only speak about a blue light and nothing else. Whoa. Within that same time period, five young men witnessed a blue light from within the forest adjacent to the cemetery. At approximately 2 a.m. during the late fall of 1963, all five men were standing on the north end of the pond next to the now-defunct car pull-off when the light traveled over the water toward them. This, they freaked out, obviously, and took off in their car down 143rd. The light chased them. While the driver was turning his head to get another look at the light, which is a terrible idea, let the passengers look, motherfucker. You drive. Keep your eyes on the road. (laughs) That is your responsibility. Anyway. Uh, Well, I mean, I get it. But at the same time, it's like you're being chased by a light. It's like, when am I going to be here again? (laughs) Right. That's true. I mean, I get it. But also, fuck, focus. Fucking focus. Um, (laughs) So he was looking at the light. The car slid into a cornfield on the side of the road, and the engine stalled. After a moment of silence among the men, (laughs) where they all shit their pants, 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not getting out of estimate directions. <laughs> the light reappeared, hovering over the front right-hand side of the car. It then proceeded to hover three times around the car, continued over the same cornfield where all the men were watching, then crossed over 143rd Street and drifted off into the forest. It was described as being transparent and about the size of a basketball. That's, ooh, that's creepy mm-hmm, as it's hell. Creepy. And so Straight up chase them. Both of these stories were told by a teacher who uh, would give these speeches. And he was one of the, the boys that saw the light. And he had the story about the two kids as well. Um, the, uh, what was it? The thing with the two that to keep in mind about this is that they, it's in the middle of a nature reserve. Like right. it's, it's surrounded by nature and forest and all right. that kind of shit. So it is very isolated, which is strange because it's so close to Chicago, but that's well, but just something to keep in that's, mind. That's, that's all, but that's all frequently the case with big uh, metropolis areas. They're surrounded by fucking wilderness. Nothing. You know, yeah. a few suburbs, a few sub- uh, suburbs, but that that's only become like here in Texas. Like you have uh, cities like Fort Worth or Dallas. It's, it's a few suburbs, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of fucking woods. Yes, a lot of fucking woods. The further outside the city, you, and you don't have to go far outside the city to find them. No, and I won't though. <laughs> um, okay, so legend has it that the light often appears on cl- clear moonlit nights, though it has also been reported to appear during daylight hours. Oh. The only commonality to the sightings, short of it being the color blue, is that it has an apparent intelligence to it. Besides the extreme case of being chased, one indication of intelligence includes the light continuously fading from view when witnesses approach it. Then, a moment later, it'll reappear behind them. Tricky. And the thing with the Bachelor's Grove, too, is it is it's part of the nature reserve, so you cannot go there at night. If you go there at night, you will be arrested. So just keep that in mind. Or chased by a blue light. Or chased by a blue light. Or one of these other things. (gasps) <gasps> there's other things of yeah there's there eight there's oh god number two Ugh. the white lady this is a resident bitch in white <laughs> the she, bitch of bachelor she's girl. also assumed to be the image in judy huff's picture mm. Re- referred to as the white lady white madonna woman on the stone or the weepy lady this spirit can be found by the Fulton family headstone. Rumored to be the spirit of a woman who was buried next to her child, she has been known to walk around holding an infant when the moon is full. Mm. She appears as semi-transparent and openly weeps. However, she doesn't always hold her daughter. Some witnesses say that she's asked them if they've seen her infant daughter. Oh. There's actually a newer picture taken in April of this year. I will post it on Instagram if I can fucking remember to do it. The, fo- the photographer, photographer, whatever. <laughs> I know how to say words. <laughs> Yay, Moscow Mule. I love that you do the same things I do. Photographer is... Photographer. That's not how that word said. I know. I was just testing you. Photographer. Um, Tim Jones took the picture. And uh, this is the story in his words. I've always been drawn to taking pictures of older headstones and cemeteries. I attempt to capture the history and pictures that the weathered, faded... Oftentimes, broken headstones are longing to tell. Mm. A couple of years ago, this passion of mine led me to a new way of trying to hear and tell the stories that reside in cemeteries, ghost hunting. While ghost hunting, I find that I am able to offer a form of communication with spirits who I feel are looking for a way to be heard or noticed. The first ever haunted cemetery I investigated was the infamous Bachelor's Grove Cemetery in the Midlothian, Illinois. On Saturday, April 20th, I returned. That's of this year. Oh. Like, it's very new. Oh, shit. Saturday, April 20th, I returned to Bachelor's Grove Cemetery with my ghost hunting team. In the presence of other paranormal, uh, and 
Oh, that's the name of the host hunting team. In the presence of others paranormal. That's the name of the team. Okay. okay. While investigating, I wanted to take the first picture with my new Polaroid camera of one of the more iconic headstones at Bachelor's Grove. The headstone that says so much with only two words, infant daughter. After taking the picture, I quickly put it in my backpack as it needs a dark place to develop. Before leaving, I looked at the picture and I got goosebumps when I saw the white mass to the left of the headstone. It was an overcast day and where the white mass was, there was not any sun shining through the trees. So I felt I could, uh, I felt I could have captured something special. When I got home, I took a picture of the original, expanded the picture, and was speechless when I saw what looks like a woman's face in the middle of the white mass. Oh. oh, oh. Could the face in the picture be that of the white lady or the Madonna of Bachelor's Grove? Every time I capture a picture, voice, or video evidence of something paranormal while ghost hunting, I am very appreciative that on that day, I was used to help tell a story. Damn. Yeah. Missy, do you have the picture? I do. Oh, Good. So here's the, it's a Polaroid. There's a picture of a Polaroid and mm-hmm, you can see the gravestone. Mm-hmm. And then the zoom in, it's very clearly some oh. sort of mass. Oh. And zoomed in, I don't know about the face. That could just be pareidolia. Um, but there's definitely. Oh, that's a creepy figure, looking though. That's so creepy. Misty figure sitting oh, there. Oh, oh, oh. In fact. Um, oh, that's good. That's this good. so-called woman in white is. Um, is the one that's probably been captured the most. There are several pictures taken of what appears to be a woman in the cemetery. Um, I'll post some of these on Instagram. Here's one. You can kind of see it's like a, the woods and there's just an outline of a woman okay. standing by the tree. That's a little dodgier it's to me. Dodgier. It's hard to see it. Sit, but... Get close. Let me see. Get, go around the microphone okay. and get close. Yeah I, I, yeah, I have to really look to see it, but I right. don't think I'd found, I wouldn't have found that image on my own. Yeah. 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 All right. It's not as All compelling right. as the as the first one. You and showed then me. there's this one. That's creepy as well. Yeah, that one's nice and creepy because it looks like it's looking out. Um. So yeah, she's, one. She's naked. The, 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 the no, I think it's just the way that dress is hitting. Okay, because it looks like she's just standing there and nothing. 1830s, 1840s. That would have been the style. But it looks like of I dress. see like it looks like well I know I, maybe but it looks like I see like two legs that are separated. But I mean if it's sheer, I mean I have no idea. That's creepy as fuck looking. Yeah. Yeah. God, that place is so overgrown, too. Uh That's sad. Yeah, it it is. It is. So then we have uh, number three, the farmer. Ooh. Perhaps the creepiest haunt in Bachelors Grove Cemetery is the farmer. In 1870, a man was plowing a field next to the cemetery. His horse got spooked and it dragged him into a nearby pond. Both drowned. Dale Kesmerick, who wrote Windy City Ghosts, claims he found research confirming the drowning death of a farmer and his horse. According to Dale, police first reported seeing the farmer cross 143rd Street in 1973. As the officers were driving east on 143rd late at night, the apparition came from out of the pond, heading north, crossed 143rd, while rapidly passing in front of their headlights and disappeared into what is now called the Rubio Woods Forest Preserve. The officers did not file a report because, obvious, uh, but Dale is the one who tells their story as well. So the same guy that tells mm. the story of... The Polaroid? Of the, no, the, no, one that, the, the two kids. No. No? No, the one that says the farmer is verified. Oh, to sorry, have sorry. Them. Yes. I'm... He's he's the one that also told the police story. And now, 
that has a tendency to make some people suspicious of his stories. Mm. I'm not going to call an actual situation, but it seems as though a lot of Dale's research is told to be researched without showing any of his actual evidence. It's not to say he's not telling the truth about the police officers because, of course, they wanted to stay, they wanted to go under the radar, they didn't want people to know who they were, or the real death of the farmer and his horse, and maybe he just can't locate that information, but it's not conclusive. Okay. Plenty of other people, though, have reported seeing the farmer and his horse. Hmm. I wish I had more time to go into this particular story because it gets really fucking weird from here. So that takes us to four. (laughs) I love it. I love weird. The two-headed monster. (gasps) What? Yeah. First of all, (laughs) the pond that they drowned in Uh is like a fucking ghost machine now, (laughs) I guess. In the 1920s, much like White Rock Lake, Mm. except it was more populated, the 1920s and and 30s, when people were getting rid of bodies, they'd get rid of it in that pond. Same thing with White Rock Lake. That's where they get rid of these bodies in the 60s and the 70s. Damn. So uh, this pond was the 20s and 30s. You take the supposed drowning event, plus dozens of dead gangsters, and according to legend, you get a twisted hunchback specter that crawls out of the pond at night. (gasps) Some report that it's actually a two-headed specter, which is usually surrounded by those blue lights. It's said that it goes... It's a skinwalker! Yeah, and then it walks through, it goes and like walks through between the tombstones. People have seen it doing that too. Oh, damn. To Dale's credit, he doesn't believe in the two-headed monster. There's a theory that some of the two-headed sightings may have been mistaken for the apparition of the farmer and his horse seeing the head, partial apparition. Mm. See the head of the farmer, see the head of the four, horse, maybe uh, they're together, yeah, they, maybe. it's yeah. two heads. So, huh, I um, see, okay. It could be why that both um, both legends are one and the same. They're very connected. Okay. So the other thing is that uh, people speculate that there are reports of a black carriage being drawn across the lagoon and that that could be a part of the farmer and the horse apparition as well. Hmm. Maybe... I think the horse and the carriage are visiting from Archer Avenue where the carriage goes tearing up and down the street. Another theory. They just want to get some attention because back up back at Archer Avenue, like Mary fucking overshadows everything. Like, I'm just going to go. What about me? Big fish in a little pond. That's right. That's right. <laughs> a big monster in a little pond. Another theory as to the origin is that since the pond was a favorite dumping ground for the mob, mayhaps the misshapen phantom is a remnant of those violent deaths. It's Man. just slurping around for justice. Oh, slurping for justice. Yeah. Yeah. Poor thing. One, it just makes me think of Swamp Monster, right? Right. Uh, one swamp belief. Thing. Swamp thing. Yeah. yeah. One belief is that the creature's existence came from the sighting of a grotesque two headed feature within the window of a mental institution in the Chicago area. At some point, details were altered and the story found itself attached to Bachelor's Grove instead. Mm. Other people believe it was a deformed man with a hunchback who was kept hidden from society until his death, which is a very common trope to hear. And then now he haunts the cemetery or haunts whatever area. Yeah. Um, The hunch, they think that there's the hunch, but people assume that it's another head, but it's actually just a hunchback. Ah, I see. Yeah. Two-headed monster. That is a very popular trope because it's all over England. There's yeah. like the famous castle that everyone thought there was like a monster that was really a dude that was like kind of like the man in the iron mask type. It mm-hmm. was a prisoner who right. was too deformed. To be seen. Um, to be seen. Or when the... like, I don't know, if you saw the kind of people that were in photographs yeah. back then, like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure they didn't lock yeah. those people up the in The cemetery attic. in Kansas, mm-hmm. that one that is people just 
fucked with and mm-hmm. just leave the cemetery alone. That one, um, it's the same thing. There was the, the devil had a baby with the witch and he was so deformed and then he died, you know, that kind of same thing. Too, yeah. But it seems tropey, but tropes start somewhere. The tropies. So was Resurrection Mary, right? <laughs> um, right. You do not have to go to the cemetery to see this guy, though. Um, it's seen around the tombstones for sure, going in and out and coming out of the pond, but many of the reports say it's been seen while driving around the area. So good luck with that, y'all. <laughs> Number five, the caretaker. If you see the man in his 70s with a shotgun, lantern, and ornery disposition in the pathway between the cemetery entrance and Rubio Woods, you just met the caretaker. Usually he tells you to leave. Occasionally he chases you out. <laughs> the legend of the caretaker has been found to include many variations. Today, the most common story speaks of a house located near the cemetery, which is supposed to have been the home of the caretaker. This house will show up and disappear, too. Ah, okay. Okay. And the house is said to be located a short distance west of what is now roped-off entrance to the main path leading to the cemetery off 143rd Street again, across from Rubio Woods Forest Preserve parking lot. Legend has it that the caretaker went crazy and murdered his family. There are variations to the story, and that includes how they were killed. Afterwards, the caretaker is said to take in his own life inside the house, in which his death was also carried out in different ways, but ultimately the house was burned down with all of them inside of it. Mm, In late fall of 1971, two male college students who parked on that defunct 143rd Street pull-off next to the pond near the cemetery. Were, they were just out trying to see some supernatural shit for themselves. So do. they walked south on the narrow path between the pond and the creek and came across a man in his 70s heading toward them. The elderly man carried a clear globe lantern, lantern emanating a yellow-orange light and began to yell at the two students as he got closer. The students eventually calmed the man and let him know that they are visiting due to the stories of the blue light and disappearing house. Becoming agitated once again, he states that the blue light does not exist. He continues to tell him that the house is very much real and that it's the caretaker's house and that he is, in fact, the caretaker. The old man ends up telling them to go see the house for themselves, following behind on a path going toward it. While on the path, the light from the lantern goes out. And both students turn around to find that the man has disappeared. The caretaker legend shares a similar detail with that of the hooked spirit urban legend. Mm. Once in a while, people will give reference to a hooked hand man with a shotgun who used to live in the area. There are, of course, tons of variations in this story as well. The general idea is the man with a hook chases the lovers from the property which once belonged to him. Right. Right. No, you're going to, sexuality's bad. We're going to hook you. Right. <laughs> so this one, I think we can give a hashtag actually yeah. on. There it was. Does sound dodgy. It does sound dodgy. Now, the guy who tells the story of the two men who sees it is the same teacher that talks about the other two men that saw it and his the two boys that were stuck in the woods and, and then, then saw the blue yeah, light. Okay. It comes from him. He used to give speeches at different schools about it. Mm-hmm. So them allowing him to say it gives it some weight. Yeah. You know what I mean? Gives the story some weight. But the truth is, you know, the caretaker legend is a legend. There was never a caretaker at the cemetery. Never. It's always been like a group effort. Mm, okay. so there was no house for well, a caretaker. It's so small. It's so small. They didn't ever have to do that. Yeah. Now, that being said, could there have been an old guy who went around looking for trespassers and shouted at him? 
Definitely. It could have been some crazy guy that was just like, took that as, as like, it's, I took it upon himself to, right, to be the to do that. So you think about it, think about it. It started in the 1950s mm-hmm. where they would, de- they were desecrating the cemetery. Yeah. So I'm sure the people around there were like, fucking no, stop it. Let's yeah, keep our eye on the cemetery. Yeah, some dude was like, I'm going to patrol it every now and again with a shotgun. Yeah. 15, 20 years later, these two young kids, teens are walking into the cemetery. Mm-hmm. The fuck are you doing? So that could be somebody legitimately who then freaked them out somehow, right? Or maybe maybe, maybe they I got like caught that. doing some real shit. And so they wanted to make sure that they weren't in trouble, but they told the ghost story instead. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. How, what What's truth, what's not. Um, and the truth, I mean, honestly, if there's a guy who spent 20, 15, 20 years protecting the cemetery from teens, there's a chance he might actually be a ghost at the cemetery still guarding it. Yeah, you know, could be. So that could be where other people have seen it. Hmm. So the actually is a caretaker is not a caretaker. And whoever yeah. they're seeing, if they're if the story is believed, is not... Someone that just maybe... It's not a caretaker. Yeah, it could just be somebody who took it upon himself. Most, most caretakers at cemeteries don't carry shotguns. I mean, no. I mean, not in my experience. And I've been to a lot of cemeteries mm-hmm. with my mom when I was younger. And one, don't you don't run into mm-hmm. a lot of caretakers at said cemeteries. Like, it's not... It's just not... It's yeah. rare to have someone living on the property that caretakes right. a cemetery. That's exactly. just not... It's for... Yeah. It's generally a job someone's paid to do for a an estate. Right. But it makes a, business. a great story does make a great story especially for people who don't realize that yeah does make a good story but i think it it, it, i think it's dodgy because it comes from someone's lack of understanding of what that job actually is and how it would come about doesn't mean i still like the idea of it some guy being like these fucking kids are breaking in someone's Mm got it and so i'm like maybe he had family buried there and so he just kind of took to walking around it with a shotgun and maybe they just called him the caretaker among in the neighborhood because it's like oh that's that's Bob. Bob's right. the, he's the sort of self-appointed caretaker. I can see that. I kind of yeah. like that story. Right. And then now he's a ghost. That seems more likely. Yeah. yeah. Number six is my favorite. <gasps> it's a big black dog. Ooh, yes. This One of those is some again. classic church grim shit. And I yes. love it. People see a huge black dog and then it disappears. The first sighting is said to have occurred in the 1980s while two young men were visiting the cemetery. Two, just two young men should not go together. That's what I'm learning about this. I'm hearing that these two men, there's a lot of young men that are going yeah, to the cemetery do to it. probably get it on because the cemetery is the only safe place Good. for them to. There's a theme for this episode that I didn't realize was a theme until now. <laughs> uh, they're going wild, wild west. <laughs> so as one of them was walking around inside, he witnessed strange flickering lights within the flora. According to the witness, he could not find an explanation for the lights and there was no object in the area that could have caused a reflection of some sort. Upon turning around, he then witnessed the backside of a black dog and it faded away into what is being described as nothingness. Mm. There are multiple reports of some sort of supernatural animal along the road to Bachelor's Grove. Witnesses claim to have seen a very large black dog near the entrance to the road. This dog always vanishes when approached, normally right before their eyes. In June of 1998, a black dog was witnessed walking out of the roped entrance to the path leading to the cemetery off 143rd. Of the two people in the report, only one of them was able to see the dog despite being able to see it perfectly clear in the nearby light of a street lamp. Upon a second trip to the cemetery one week later, the same person who was able to see the dog was visiting the area with a group of friends when he saw the same dog in the same location. During this particular sighting, two out of five were able to see it. Without any movement, for long, the dog faded little by little until it was completely gone. 
it looked to them as possibly being a black Doberman. During the summer of 2003, a small group of boys witnessed a dog come from behind a tree and run toward them. Out of fear, the boys rode their bicycles out of the cemetery, and as they looked back, they found that the dog had disappeared. Other Jim Gressick, Gressick? Mm, Jim reveals his own <laughs> encounters with a phantom dog in the late 1980s in his 2008 book, Chicago Hauntings for Teens. He describes a black and brown Rottweiler that came out of the woods as they exited the cemetery, and it proceeded to follow him and his associates along the main path that leads to the cemetery. During a 2009 interview, he described walking down the path towards the Rubio Woods park parking lot as the dog kept pace with him and the others he was visiting with. Everyone became concerned and made a pact to defend each other against the dog. He mentioned that the dog looked very real and that they all found it strange that it never barked nor growled. After exiting the roped entrance to the main path of 143rd, the dog continued to follow them and stopped near the concrete curb. It continued to watch them as they crossed 143rd, and once making it back to the car, Jim turned around to find that the dog had disappeared. Jim stated that he did not know the story of the phantom dog at the time and strongly believes that the dog he witnessed was the one in the same. Protect that cemetery church, Graham. That's what I say. Or abandoned dog. It could be an abandoned Maybe dog. Maybe the caretaker takes dog form every now and again. Maybe he gets oh, tired of being go. an old man with a gun and land and he's like, I'm going to be a Doberman. So I did find this picture. And if you look. So many on. pictures this episode. I know. I love it. It's one of the most photographed cemeteries, I guess. In the center, it looks like the shadow of a black dog. It pointed ears. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, I can see that. And so they're like, is it? Now, it, that could be Pareidolia too, because there's shadow there, but it does look like a black dog just sitting there watch looking it. at maybe, the maybe. fence. Maybe. I think they... But again, it's one of those instances of like, if you, have not, if you had not pointed that out, I don't right. think I would ever see that as a dog. Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Would the people who have taken that photograph have seen it had they had the story of the dog not been around right it's so hard to try like it's so <sighs> pareidolia is fucking mm -hmm. real you guys mm -hmm. it's gonna be like oh see stuff and then and then once you and then you can't unsee it once you've convinced yourself that yeah. oh it looks like that thing his you eyes know. will make mm -hmm. it make that pattern fit it's your brain's job the yellow man the last the spirit is also the most newly discovered oh. in 2009 oh i was just 10 years ago a local ghost hunter wanted to capture the Madonna by the Fulton tombstone, but instead found something else. The yellow man. <gasps> While the ghost hunter was setting up her equipment, she heard someone by the Shields family plot. When she turned around, she saw the yellow apparition of a man dressed in 1930s clothing. Since then, a yellow light has manifested with the blue lights mentioned earlier. Ooh. The origin of the yellow man can be traced back to researcher Norman Basile of Illinois. The earliest written record of the sighting can be found within an October of 1984 Chicago Sun-Times newspaper article where Norman is quoted as saying, a month and a half ago, I saw an apparition standing by a tree. It was a yellow figure, a man with a hat, probably in his 40s. During the summer of 1984, Norman and one of his associates were attempting an overnight camping excursion within the cemetery. Norman's associate was a skeptic of anything supernatural, but he agreed to go to help carry camera equipment and microphones and all that shit. Around midnight, a few hours after their arrival, while both were standing back to back to each other, his associate stated, oh my God, look what's standing over by the trees. By the time Norman turned around, it was too late. The apparition had disappeared. His associate described a man in his 40s, all in yellow, wearing a suit and a hat. A moment later, they both witnessed red streaking lights and watched in disbelief 
as a single tree began to shake frantically. They both freaked out, so they gathered up their stuff and immediately left the area. Found within a 1996 report, although we don't know what year this occurred, a woman by the name of Heather had stated, I was starting to get bored with being here. There. Then it happened. I saw a man there dressed in yellow. I told my dad he didn't see anything, and he didn't see anything. Neither did my friend. I couldn't help but stare at it. It wasn't a solid form, but more translucent in shape, although I did see it. I can't explain exactly what happened next, but I remember leaving the cemetery with my dad and friend. Then all of a sudden, I felt something cold rush past me. I started to run. I didn't care. I wanted out of there. I had enough. There are a couple of alleged images taken of the yellow man. Ooh. On October 19th, 1998, a casual visit made to the cemetery to capture scenic photographs occurred. Due to the expense of de- developing 35 millimeter film, one of the first economical digital cameras on the market at that time was purchased and tested. Upon capturing a view from the Fulton Monument, at the very moment the button was pushed, the image of a tall yellow humanoid figure was briefly witnessed with the human eye, which was also within the view of the camera lens. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's very light. It's very light and it's so, it's like, it's tiny. It, yeah. It could be back, Georgie. I, I don't know. Is that his name, Georgie? <laughs> From it, yes. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's definitely yellow, like a yellow jacket or yellow suit yeah. or something. But yeah, it looks, it looks like a, like a yellow hood and jacket or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. That's weird. Um, and so what makes this intriguing is the human eye factors. They saw it when they took the picture. Hmm. And so, you know, of course, what they saw is not what shows up in the picture, but something shows up in the picture that yeah. validates what they saw, huh. which is really cool. I mean, it's like, have you ever tried to take a picture of the sunset? Right. You and can't it ever never, get ever, it. It, it never works out. It never, so, never um, quite conveys what you saw. Found within a 2011 examiner.com article by Patricia Marin is a photograph that was captured in close proximity to the sighting just mentioned. During April of 2009 at approximately 10.30 p.m., Nina Jankowski, there's a lot of Owskis in uh, <laughs> it's very uh, uh, Polish-Lithuanian okay. area as well, um, of the Chicago Ghost Hunters Group in Illinois, photographed an orange-yellow light next to the Fulton Monument. You can't miss this one. Oh, Oh, that's creepy as fuck. Well, let me see that again. Even from over there. Oh! Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. That's creepy. According to Nina, she was standing by the tombstone of Charles B. Shields in Lot 17 looking east when she started to feel somewhat lightheaded. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw something that looked like a shadow person run past her. That's when she snapped the photo and caught this anomaly. The article goes on to quote Jankowski as saying, once I started feeling dizzy, it was almost as though I was somehow surrounded and being guided to take this photo. When I dro- when I grabbed my digital camera, I noticed it was turning on and off by itself, and it was on a different setting than the one I had chosen earlier. Ooh. Then... It's all shapeshifters now. I'm telling you, I think I think maybe, maybe Bachelor's Grove is a portal that leads to it makes uh, you wonder. Skinwalker Ranch. That it was there seven or eight? I guess we're just seven. We're just well, seven. that's it. That's the end of my story. I guess there's more to it. But I guess <laughs> that's it. It won't sweat. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, I guess it's seven, not eight. Oh I think a couple of them are combined into one. But um, so yeah, that Bachelor's is Bachelor's Grove, Grove, one of the most haunted cemeteries. There's a lot of stories behind it. Um, and I think probably and a lot of those and photographs, a lot of those stories are legend, but it seems as though it's not all made up. There's something going on. Interesting. 
Well, <sighs> on the topic of legends that mm -hmm. start with truth and end in with truth, so to speak, but there's some, there's a lot of actually in the middle. I'm going to tell mine, but first, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go pee. Okay, then, that makes sense. Uh, maybe make us another round of drinks. Okay, let's do it. All right. So I, because we've been in Chicago for a couple of weeks now on the podcast, we're not actually in Chicago when we record this, though. God, I wish we were. Um, I decided it would just be great. I mean, we've been talking about ghosts and the ghosts of the Windy City. And I thought, yes. wouldn't it be interesting to explore a horrific story about a guy that certainly made some ghosts? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it I'm doing. Yeah. It would be. <laughs> so uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of oopsie ghosts uh, for this guy. I'm doing mine on H. H. Holmes. Woohoo! And we the... had a couple people actually say, suggest that too. So good. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. And this is I'm going to tell you right now. This is kind of like Resurrection Mary. It's going to be, or with that cemetery anyway. It's going to be a two parter because his story is way too complicated. There's a lot of left turns. There's a lot of actually. I thought I knew this story. Mm -hmm. um, so I have three sources that I'm citing, uh, kind of in order of publication. There's the book, the wonderful true crime uh, book by Harold Schechter called Depraved about uh, the exploits mm -hmm. of H.H. H. Holmes. Then, of course, there's Double in the White City by Eric Larson, which is how right. most people know of it, which yeah. is also a superb book. And a very recently published, in fact, I think it just came out in 2017, a book by a guy named Adam Seltzer called H.H. H. Holmes, The True Story of the White City Devil, which uh, found a lot of new information about him that was not previously known. Mm -hmm. And so far, as far as I know, no one has come out to debunk him. Uh, don't worry, I'm not trying to suggest that H.H. H. Holmes was mythical or that he wasn't an asshole who killed a lot of people, but it's surprisingly just how complicated his story is. So it's going to really? be in two parts, and I'm going to tell the first part of it today, and I'm calling the first part of it the Murder Castle. Yay, Murder Castle. <laughs> I mean, boo, Murder Castle. Boo, Murder Castle. It's I mean, everyone, H.H. H. Holmes has been like a pop culture figure for a long time now. Most people now probably know him. Um, from uh, his portrayal in uh, the season hotel of mm, American mm -hmm. Horror Story, which is quite fun. Yeah, he's the first serial killer known. Serial he's the killer. first. He's the first urban serial killer. He's not right. the first serial killer that America ever had, but oh. he he he's notable for a number of reasons. Most of which he's the first urban serial killer because he was the first guy to do it in the big city, in a big city, because big cities were not. Um, known at the in, in America, right? And he well, was and he also did a, wasn't he the first one that they knew that it was a serial killer at the time. No, oh no, because he was pretty good at covering. He was pretty good at covering his tracks. He he only got caught trying to do other crimes. He was oh. uh, he was very much an opportunist, but he was also very much. Um, I mean, he was just a fucking criminal through and fucking through. I don't mm -hmm. think he ever did a legal thing in his life. Mm -hmm. So he was a con artist. He was a kind of a lonely hearts killer. He was, uh, he right. was, a, he was a flim flam man. I mean, I will go through the list Enjoy of things he did, but like said flim flam man. Yeah. Enjoy I, it. Flim flam. That's a great word. No one uses, it but it was very popular, uh, shortly after this era, but we'll get into the era because he was very much the man of the age. Okay. Um, He's also known because a lot of uh, some of the killings uh, that would, you know, 
only be known about years later took place in 1888, or at least mm -hmm. that's the year that he first kind of came into prominence and first came into the ability to kind of murder on a massive scale, which he wanted to do, which we'll get into that. Um, it was his dream to build a murder castle. And he didn't just do that because like, oh, I have a castle I should murder in. And he was like, one day. As a child, he probably sat down and was like, one day I'm going to have a castle and I'm going to use it to kill people. That's that's his A dream thing. is a wish your heart makes. <laughs> his black little heart made that wish when he was very young, according to him. Um, but uh, I want to I want to take a detour for just a second. And this is going to this may blow your mind, too. But he is H.H. Uh, Holmes is for a lot of reasons. He's kind of the American archetype of the Bluebeard killer, of the mm -hmm. the charming, sophisticated, um, romantic leading man type who also just murders women, uh, either because he grows bored with them or to fleece them out of money and murdering them is the easiest way to get away with it or whatever. But did you know? I don't know that himself. <laughs> <laughs> that a lady, a very uh, notorious ladies' man, who was very famous uh, for uh, for other things as well, Charlie Chaplin, mm -hmm. actually made a movie. It was one of his only talking pictures he ever made. It was much later. It was, I want to say it was, came out in the 30s, called Monsieur Vaudot. And it is, you cannot tell me it is not based on the H.H. H. Holmes legend, which right. was rampant at the time. Uh, it's about he play. It's a comedy, obviously a black comedy, but he plays a man who is uh, who is a bigamist and serial murderer, hmm. who's like just kills wives. Uh, he marries rich women that have more money than sense, and then he kills yeah. them off in a variety of hilarious ways. And uh, right. and it's Charlie fucking Chaplin not well, playing was... the tramp. It's him playing yeah. a totally different character. You, you wouldn't recognize him if you didn't know. It was Charlie There's Chaplin. another guy who did that, the Lonely Hearts Killer thing, um, up in Canada. In mm, mm. a town that I was in this year, maybe last year. <laughs> Toronto? No, no, it's smaller. It's like the Fort Worth of... Oh, uh, 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 Calgary. Calgary. Yeah. Was it Calgary? That's the Fort Worth of... Maybe. It's the cow town. It's now the I can't remember. Everybody's going to be like, it's this one, Jamie. But he like, yeah. Well, they can't blame me for not knowing it because you, this wasn't your topic. That's true. Um, it's not my topic. Yes, I went on the ghost tour of that particular town with Erica, but I cannot remember where it was. <laughs> It'll come to you. I'll blame the vodka. Blame the vodka. That, that blame drink, the vodka. That drink that hit you hard. Mm -hmm. Um. But anyway, he he did a lot of murdering of like the Lonely Hearts thing. They didn't. He, they didn't even have to have a lot of money. He would just be like, "Hey, let's start this business. It's a great idea." Her yeah. family would give them a lot of money to do it. Then he'd kill her and keep them Sometimes out. Holmes killed women because he wanted to swindle them out of money. Sometimes he just really liked them and wanted mm -hmm. to like have his way with them and then grew bored mm -hmm. and then murdered them. Um, in fact, there are only two women that seems to that seem to have survived their relationships with Holmes. Mm -hmm. And they were pretty far apart and never knew each other. Um, so he was born. Did one of them make me His eyes? real name, and I can't blame him for going with H.H. H. Holmes because his real name, he was born May 16th, 1861, mm -hmm. as Herman Webster Mudgett. Well, <laughs> That's all his right. real name. He was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, to a pair of devout Methodist parents who ran a farm. And being devout Methodist parents did not spare the rod. Uh, mm -hmm. They supposedly beat him for the usual childhood infractions, but added to this the curious habit of often locking him in the attic. Oh, no. Now, after the Great Fire, uh, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, which Holmes would have certainly been aware of, um, he often daydreamed about his mother and father being burned alive, though he insisted he loved them. Well, and this, uh, this makes you ask the question, was it that they 
chicken and egg, right? Did they yeah. abuse him? And that's and what, that or was him... he just always like that? And they were like, uh, I'm going to go ahead and put him in the attic because I don't trust he's him to the be Antichrist. free. Well, I will say getting locked in an attic or even a basement as a child of that era is not unusual. And right. He, and, but Holmes is unusual for both what he was, because he, he was really, oh my God, the depth of his just complete sociopathology. Like right. he cared for nothing. And it was like, for him, it's a big lark. All of this was a big lark. Yeah, that's a sociopath. Um, completely. But I mean, even that word doesn't seem to do it justice. Like he doesn't, I mean, sociopaths would look at this guy and be like, no, nah, you're too much. Um, <laughs> now granted, too most of what we know about his early years comes to us from Holmes himself, who was, of course, among many other things, a notorious liar. I mean, he is the biggest uh, hitch in trying to find stuff up about him. Uh, when he was caught was that he was full of shit. Like he mm -hmm. loved leading police on, on wild goose chases. Um, he ultimately, he is, he was convicted and executed for murdering nine people that they could prove uh, with remains that they found. He confessed to 20. Some historians say he killed over 200. Wow. They don't know. Uh, but anyway, most of his childhood kind of, you know, nothing survives from his childhood uh, except what came to him. But there are two incidents that are corroborated by other people that stand out. The first one, and this was kind of <laughs> as closest to kind of an origin story as you can get, but a group of older neighborhood boys um, who were fed up with uh, Holmes's pedantic attitude in school. He was one of those insufferable fucking know-it-alls. Um, dragged him into a local doctor's office after hours and stuffed him inside a cabinet with a real human skeleton that the doctor kept for display purposes. Now, bear in mind, these were the wilderness years of modern medicine. Like, we were just getting out of the belief in humors and using leeches, leeches and, yeah. and shit like that. But it was also a time of fucking crazy experimentation where doctors were just like... so. A doctor's what happens office... if we do that? Lobotomies. <laughs> yeah. 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 So doctor's offices were fucking scary places. You know, like, yeah. the doctors did not think about, like, well, do people need to feel comfortable? Because, no, people come in and, like, there's bloody fucking tools hanging up on the walls. There's a little mini lab over there with all kinds of crazy shit well, going on. And they're not going to give you painkillers. That's not a thing. Well, they, they you could. You could get cocaine right. for your teeth. <laughs> Yay! And lot them for your headaches. Yeah, right. Both of which work really well still. Um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, I mean, they do. They do. You're not wrong. Um, but he, <laughs> but Holmes recalled the experience of being locked in that cabinet with that real life skeleton as formative. Like that mm -hmm. he was terrified, but the course of that evening that he spent, like apparently the whole night there, um, he grew to kind of think, this is fucking cool. And afterwards he kind of became obsessed with death. And he often looked back on that moment as when he realized he was different. Mm -hmm. Um, Another incident that we know of is there was a little boy named Tom who mysteriously fell to his death from the upper floor of an abandoned house he was exploring with Holmes one afternoon. Now, no charges were ever brought against him, but everyone that knew Holmes felt that he had had a hand in little Tom's death. When asked whether he missed his one and only friend, Holmes said simply, I'd rather be alone anyway. Wow. So he was an intense, off-putting child with piercing blue eyes that could bore a hole through the hardiest adult. And indeed, Holmes would turn these rather idiosyncratic traits to advantage as he got older, conning just about everyone he came into contact with. Mm -hmm. um, at 16, Holmes, for now let's call him Mudget since that was his real name, uh, graduated Mudget. high school and took teaching positions in Gilmanton and later nearby Alton for a few years until on July 4th, 1878, he married Clara Lovering and fathered a son named Robert. 
Now, fascinated by the human body, uh, not to mention the small fortune the right sort of man could make, hawking cures for whatever ailed you, Mudgett enrolled in the University of Vermont, uh, but quickly grew disenchanted with the medical curriculum and instead switched over to the University of Michigan. He apprenticed with a guy named Dr. Nahum White, or Witt, um, who was at the time a very vocal proponent, a proponent of dissection. Dissection mm. was a very, like autopsies, things like that were extremely controversial because yeah. people still considered it desecration of, of sacred remains. And so this guy really went on a limb and kind of um, risked uh -huh. his... Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even mean that. Damn it. Damn it. You got me. <laughs> gotcha. um, <laughs> you got yourself. He, I, damn it. I was just so good. I didn't even know it. <laughs> But so being someone that, being a doctor that stood up or being a surgeon that stood up for dissection was a big thing. And this was a guy that had a huge influence on, on Holmes's um, formative years mm -hmm. as, he, as a young medical practitioner. Now, um, ever the schemer, Mudgett, charmed a classmate of his into helping him commit insurance fraud of an especially grisly type. The two would take life insurance policies out on themselves, make each other uh, the beneficiaries, then use the school's supply of nameless cadavers to stage their deaths. <gasps> now, the sheer outrageousness of the scheme guaranteed success. Few people could conceive of using yeah. the dead to such ends, so they got away with it. Um, it's around this time, for obvious reasons, Mudgett adopted a number of aliases. The nom de plume he preferred was Henry Howard Holmes and mm. became his favorite. Now, Triple H! Getting back to his wife, Clara, who was living with him when he went to, to Michigan, she came with him and lived, and their housemates at the time recalled that he treated her abysmally. He beat her all the time, which is another sign of a serial mm -hmm. killer that kind of practices at home with his, with his family uh, before staking out the world and becoming a nuisance at large. Um, she finally had enough of it and fled with their son, Robert, uh, to New Hampshire but shortly before he graduated and she cut off all contact with Good him. Good for her. One of the only women to survive any contact with him. Um, Holmes moved to Morris Forks, New York uh, after this, but he wound up... over the place. But wound up... Oh, we're just getting started. But he wound up leaving uh, Morris Forks shortly after under a cloud of suspicion when rumors began spreading that he'd been seen with a missing boy. In other words, a boy had gone missing, and people were like, but we saw this guy, Holmes, hanging around with him. And Holmes mm. apparently made excuses going, like, oh, yeah, he was a, ki a, a friend's kid, and I was taking him to the park or whatever. But they couldn't prove he did anything, but, like, before anything could happen, he just picked, packed off and left. Which mm. doesn't look good. Mm -mm. Um, he then packed off to Philadelphia and opened a thriving little corner drugstore, despite knowing fuck all about pharmacology. For the most part, he got by on proffering harmless placebos and simple compounds for common ailments. However, when one of his impromptu concoctions accidentally killed a customer in Oopsies. 1886, he closed shop and made a mad dash for Chicago. Mm. Now, this wasn't his first time in the Windy City. He'd gone there while on break from medical school years earlier to scam people door-to-door -door as a bookseller. <laughs> yes, he fucking turned bookselling into a scam. He would basically go door-to-door. Uh, -door. He produced some beautifully bound display copy of, like, say, the King James Bible or Aesop's Fables or something like that, agree to send folks their own copy through the Pony Express in exchange for an unbelievably modest fee, and then just make never, up with the cash yeah. and never send them a book. I mean, it was... People were fucking mind-blowingly gullible in those days, it seemed, because it just wouldn't occur to them that someone yeah. would do this. Like, right. uh, you know, nowadays, fuck, no one can do anything honest because everyone thinks everyone's on something. But this was a different age. People were just yeah. like, well, what am I? And he was charming. He was handsome well, by the standards of the day. People were common. It was very They were very common. common. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it was more, you were more likely in those days, especially unless you lived in a big city, you were more likely to 
see a, to buy your things from a traveling salesman than from a yeah. store. Yeah. Um, unless it was like a grocery store or something like that, in a general store, like right. a traveling salesman. You know, that was it was a it was a thing. because why would they lie? They have to sell their goods. Well, exactly. That's, um, yeah. But he was kind of like the the uh, um, the guy from Music Man. This yeah. was his thing. He doesn't know the territory. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Holmes's indelible charm made child's play out of separating fools from their hard-earned cash. This was the age of the flim-flam man, the con man, and Holmes was crown prince of them all. Um, now, a word on Chicago at the time before we continue. It was a city forever changed by the Great Fire. Mm -hmm. Though utterly devastated, within a few years, a thoroughly modern metropolis had emerged from the ashes. The first skyscrapers ever replaced the old wooden buildings, which, of course, went up like tender in the Great Fire. These big, towering edifices of steel and concrete rose up over the infrastructure that was already in place. Mm -hmm. uh, Chicago was essentially a phoenix. Tragic though it was, the Great Fire ultimately put the Windy City at the vanguard of the modern era. This may have been the age of the con man, as I've said, but it was also an age of newfound female independence. The railroad, uh, which of course now is everywhere, empowered women to travel long distances from home unescorted. As a result, many of them left their humble beginnings to stake their claim on life in the big city, at least for a while. This was the first time a woman in America could strike out on her own. If she wanted to help herself to a tiny portion of life's banquet prior to settling down with some schmuck, <laughs> she could hop a train <laughs> bound for Chicago, where she could make good money mm -hmm. as a seamstress, a weaver, a typist, stenographer, etc. Like, all these jobs. So yeah. women could go, and this was the first time this was happening in the United States. Um, so it was great to be a woman at the time because for the first time, other because what were your options? Yeah. Um, well, comparatively, yeah. because what were your uh, yeah compared to the decade before? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, because what were their options? Like yeah. you can get on a train. Like, well, I can sit here and you know tend to farm and you know marry the guy down the road that you know is the only person in town that's not fucking related to me. Um, right. You know. So well, it's and like, also just to leave a bad situation because mm -hmm. previously, if. A woman was born into well, a bad situation. She yeah. didn't have any options. She well, had to and stay like, there. Like Holmes's first wife, Clara, was able yeah. to just pack off and leave yeah. because of the railroad. Um, now, so so cities were a huge draw for women. Mm -hmm. But it was far well, they from... they also had a lot of boarding houses for women, Yes, too. Yeah. exactly. Um, now, but Chicago was far from the city of dreams, however. At the time, sanitation was um, hardly a priority and life was cheap. Rotten food, horse dung, and human waste collected in the streets, choking insufficient gutters, meat packing plants churned out noxious odors 24-7. In mm, fact, this is the time that Umpton Sinclair wrote The Jungle yeah. uh, about the meat packing industry. Um, pedestrians swept along by crowds fell under streetcars. On mm -hmm. average, about two people per day, it's estimated, got shoved in front of trains. Horses, spooked by the hustle and bustle, would thunder through crowds, injuring or killing dozens. And this, of course, being long before such things as OSHA codes, shitty working conditions were the norm, and fires broke out almost daily, claiming the lives of countless workers. Uh, this also, being early capitalism's heyday in America, law enforcement agencies were privately owned. The resulting mm -hmm. tiny and often profoundly corrupt police force simply couldn't handle the crime rate that comes with such a rapidly growing metropolis. Murder was like bad weather. The only thing to be done was fucking avoid it if you could. Despite all this, Chicago was chosen to host the 1893 World's Fair. Now, this is a big deal because it was up oh, to, it yeah. was going to be Chicago uh, or St. Louis or New York. And um, America had been fucking taken to school at the previous World Fair, which was held mm -hmm. in Paris, mm -hmm. um, because they didn't realize. I mean, because just to give you an idea, like, 
our showing at the at the World's Fair in 1889 in Paris was uh, like our biggest thing was the Buffalo Bills Wild West show. Right. Um, the French unveiled the fucking Eiffel Tower. Right. And so they're like, mur, mur. well, <laughs> we got like, guns Shit. and hats. Yeah, well, we got guns and hats, and we kill indigenous people. Yay! <laughs> Yay. Um, so the idea that the World's Fair was coming to America and that one of these cities in like Chicago was chosen was a big fucking deal. This was America's chance to like show the world that we, as a as a nation, can be taken seriously. We are we are at the forefront. Mm -hmm. We are modern. We are awesome. Fuck your Eiffel Tower. <laughs> and so. Right. Um, you know, America saw the 1893 World's Fair as its chance to really shine. H.H. H. Holmes had a similar view with regard to himself. He was ready to shine. Mm. In Inglewood, a growing suburb of Chicago, he answered a help-wanted sign in the window of a small pharmacy on the corner of Wallace and 63rd Street. The shop's proprietor lay upstairs, slowly dying of cancer, while his exhausted wife, one Elizabeth S. Holton, ran the shop on her own. She was quick to offer Holmes a job. He, of course, neglected to mention his manslaughter mishap in Philadelphia, but by the time he came clean to her about it, he'd so ingratiated himself to the business by charming customers, and it must be said, offering exemplary service, Holton was willing to turn a blind eye. Accidents happen, she told him. <laughs> when the proprietor finally passed away, Holmes offered to buy the pharmacy from the widow, Holton, on a payment plan. She happily agreed, went so far as to call Holmes an angel for being willing to take the business off her hands. Alas, she never saw a dime. When pressed... The handsome, mustachioed sweet talker would simply smile demurely and make excuses month after month as to why he couldn't pay her yet. Holton finally filed suit against him and mysteriously disappeared. Mm -hmm. Now, regulars asked after the old woman, Holmes would assure them she'd just sipped over to California to visit relatives. When months passed with no sign of her return, he updated his story to say she decided to live there. Now, around this time, though uh, never officially divorced from Clara, Holmes married a woman named Myrta Beltnap from Minneapolis, whom he met while traveling and subsequently courted by post. Um, he did at least incidentally try to sue for divorce from Clara, citing infidelity on her part, but the courts were unimpressed with the lack of evidence, so he just gave it up and stayed married to her and just decided... Yeah, it was uh, a lot harder yeah. to get divorced back then. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Even his... for the man. <laughs> yeah. Go uh, his glowing letters to Murda about the seedy side of Chicago life lured the inexperienced young woman to the Windy City, where they wed in a whirlwind ceremony not long after she dismounted the train. Murda, an able woman behind a register, assisted Holmes at the pharmacy. Nuptial bliss wouldn't last long, however. Clara grew, uh, excuse me, Murta grew jealous of his easy manner with the female, with the female clientele, many of whom came in just to flirt with her oh. husband. Holmes eventually banished Murta from the pharmacy altogether, consigning her to desk work in their apartment, in their, in their apartment over the shop. Within a year, she got pregnant. After the birth of their daughter, Lucy, on July 4th, 1889, Holmes packed the July 4th? Off. July 4th. So they got married on July 4th, and then his second child was born on July 4th. No, 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 no. Uh, was they married on July 4th? July 6th. Was it married Clara? Hang oh, on. Why did he marry Clara? Oh, dates, 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 dates. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Fourth of July. That's right. You're right. That's Holy crazy. shit. That's kind of weird. I just now got, yeah, weird. Um, anyway, so after she gave birth to Lucy on July 4th, um, Holmes just like, okay, we're done. And he packed them both off to Minneapolis to live with Murda's family and basically Bye. didn't keep in touch with them. Um, again, Murda and Clara, his first two wives, were the only women wow. to survive being in a relationship with him. So now his wife gone, Holmes turned his attention to the vacant lot across the street from the pharmacy, which had been on his mind from the moment he came to town. 
He sold the pharmacy and purchased the lot under the name H.H. Campbell in the summer of 1888. His plans for the lot were big. With the 1893 World's Fair looming, area real estate was a gold mine to anyone with a, lot, with a little foresight. A hotel catering to the throngs of tourists soon to be pouring through Inglewood would be just the thing to rake in mountains of cash. But that, to Holmes, was only a pleasant side perk of his much grander and far more sinister scheme. Holmes, you see, for as long as he could remember, dreamt of building a hotel ingeniously equipped for indulging his life's one true passion. Murder! Murder! <laughs> now, no one, and this is true, no one knew the three-story building's layout, save Holmes himself, who right. designed the blueprints from scratch. Um, he kept those blueprints a jealously guarded secret, and over the course of its construction, he cleverly hired, fired, and of course swindled out of their paychecks over 500 different contractors who, thanks to the coming economic crash, were flocking to Chicago in search of work and therefore easy to come by. He'd fire one, and the other one would be like, fuck that guy, I can do it, whatever. Right. And so Holmes would, so none of them knew the layout of the castle. It's just be um, like, you do this portion, you do this you do portion, portion, and then I'll yeah. fire you, and then the other guy would come, and they got to worry about that hallway, but do this one over here. So no one knew. And of course, these people didn't have the money to, to bring them to court to pay. they just have to move on to some other job uh, yeah. because they needed the fucking cash. These were these were itinerant workers. It's very Donald Trump of them. Um, very Donald Trump. Um so this didn't just give him money. Of course, it ensured that he only he knew the castle's full layout. And so basically complete with narrow, sparsely lit hallways, pitched at odd angles, airtight rooms with hidden gas jets and doors that locked from the outside, oh. greased chutes leading down to a limestone cellar fitted with chemical vats and an industrial furnace ostensibly used for glass bending, he told the uh -huh. salesman. Holmes's castle was a monument to serial murder. So outrageous in conception that no one could believe it. Um... This gave him impunity to kill at leisure. When the building first opened for business in 1888, the year of the Ripper murders in London by a diabolical right. coincidence, it was primarily a suite of shops. By collecting bad loans and artfully dodging creditors, Holmes added a third story in 1892. Uh, these were the guest rooms, though few guests would feel at ease in them. I can't imagine why. Those unlucky enough to choose the castle for their lodging while in town, most of whom were unaccompanied single women to whom Holmes chiefly advertised, would enter an opulent lobby, sign in, acquire a key, and be led past a massive pharmacy that positively dwarfed the one across the street. The poor dude <laughs> that he bought the first... This is true. He sold the old pharmacy to this guy, and when the guy... like, cool, they signed the deed, whatever, gave him the keys, and the guy shut up. Holmes had taken all the brass fixtures from that one and just recycled them in his new pharmacy. And so oh, the guy... Went, and he he didn't tell him. He was like, oh, I'm going to build a pharmacy. There's going to be a pharmacy in the hotel and building across the street. Fuck right. you. He didn't tell him. The fucking asshole. Um, anyway, alas, the lobby gave little indication of the third floor's Spartan accommodations. There were few actual windows, none of which looked out from the rooms themselves. If Holmes took a murderous fancy to you, you might find the air in your room growing thinner as night wore on. You wouldn't see the gas jets, of course. You might feel as though someone were watching, but have no way of knowing Holmes was peeping on your slow demise through a secret peephole, or that he might be furiously masturbating behind a secret panel as your mounting panic gave way to confusion, faintness, and finally, death. Yeah. Your corpse would then be conveyed to the cellar through one of the greased chutes, your, uh, and then your flesh stripped off in a chemical bath. Often your skeleton would be sold to a local medical school who were always in need of one, uh, all while on the main floor, it was business as usual. Now, Holmes's regular employees, who he had a reputation for treating rather well, noticed the alarming frequency with which young, unescorted women would skip out on their bill, often leaving behind clothes and personal effects in the process. Hmm. What was even more bizarre 
the boss didn't seem to pay it much mind. One of Holmes's early murder victims was his mistress, a woman named Julia Smith, spelled like Smythe. She was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes's building and worked at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. When Connor found out about their affair, he quit his job in disgust, leaving her and their daughter Pearl with Holmes. Uh, Julia took legal custody of Pearl and stayed at the hotel where she and Holmes, at least to hear him tell it, had a steamy romance. Alas, Julia and Pearl both fell off the face of the earth on Christmas Eve, 1891. Holmes later claimed she died during a botched abortion, conducted, of course, in his basement. Mm. Another likely Holmes paramour, a woman named Emmeline uh, Sigrand, began working in the building in May of 1892 and vanished that December. Her fate was especially gruesome. Holmes, you see, had installed a massive airtight bank safe in his bedroom, though true to form he avoided paying the manufacturer. By the time the safe company set re uh, sent repo men to take it back, Holmes had had it built into the wall such that prying it out would have incurred damages far in excess of what the safe was worth. And so the right. company was like, fuck you, bah. Fine, keep it. <laughs> we'll right. leave it. Emmeline met her end inside of that safe. Ugh. Presumably bored of her as a romantic partner, Holmes tossed her into the safe one evening and watched from a peephole as the poor woman suffocated to death over a period of hours. Ugh. Maybe not even hours, because once a person starts panicking, the air in those spaces goes pretty fucking quickly. He'd also dashed a pool of some kind of acid across the floor to hasten the process, oh just to gosh. kind of rob it of oxygen. And this is kind of a detail that's really kind of sad. Um... Emmeline's tiny footprint could still be made out on the inside of the thick iron door afterwards because she tried to hoist her way out of it bodily and there was just enough acid on the bottom of her shoe to just corrode here. just enough of the metal that there was still oh. a footprint that oh came up in gosh. court. Um, another of Holmes's victims, Edna Van Tassel, is believed to have met her fate in the same manner not much later. These women, however, would only be two among many, as we'll see. And we'll get to that in part two. Ah. Yeah, there's so fucking much. Wow. But I will say, as a little teaser, did you know that Holmes intended to build a murder castle in another city as well? When things started going south in mm -hmm. Chicago, he decided to actually go south. And he acquired property and was on the verge of beginning building another even better murder castle in Fort Worth. <gasps> Really? And that's true. Oh, he could have yeah. killed the shit out of people in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. With the cattle and all that stuff. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. It's already haunted enough, though. Right. Oh right. my gosh. That's awesome. I can't wait till next week. Dude. It's so gruesome. Yeah. And we'll hear more. So we'll hear about his henchmen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And all these other schemes, like, oh, Holmes's ultimate downfall as a teaser is that he just had too many schemes going on at once. And right. he was never caught. Uh, he wasn't, he, the only reason he ever fucking got caught is because finally a bunch of creditors were like teaming up, going, is this motherfucker doing this to you too? And they were right. coming after him for avoiding his debts and in the process discovered that he'd been doing these other things. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's always the fucking money. That's the Man. only reason. That's insane. He got caught. 
Well, I will try to steer us away from Chicago next yeah. time. <laughs> but We're pushing away from Chicago. I know. It's just, there's so, it's so juicy. It's, it's so juicy rich. city. We can do this for so many cities. Though. I know. We can do this so this can be our new format. I know, right? Just <laughs> hang out Let's there for a while. Focus for like a couple of weeks on one city. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, GoonTentions.com. Send us your stories. Um, all that jazz. <laughs> you need another drink. I Actually, do. We need food. We need food. I'm, Fuck, so, I'm so hungry. hungry. You guys hungry out there? I know. I Let's go get some cheese. Oh my god, cheese. Let's do it. <gasps> and remember, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.